Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. This week's featured new release is The Great Filling Station Holdup, edited by Josh Pachter. Jimmy Buffett is one of the greatest contemporary singer-songwriters, and it's hard to imagine a citizen of the planet Earth unfamiliar with such classic hits as Margaritaville. Jimmy has also written novels, children's books, memoirs, and a stage musical based on Herman Wojk's Don't Stop the Carnival, and his family-friendly concerts are always always to sell out to audiences comprised of a mix of dedicated parrot heads, casual fans, and newbies. In the Great Filling Station Holdup, editor Josh Pachter presents 16 short crime stories by 16 popular and up-and-coming crime writers, each story based on a song from one of the 28 studio albums Jimmy has released over the last half century. If you love Jimmy's music or crime fiction or both, you'll love The Great Filling Station Holdup. Mix yourself a boat drink, ask Alexa, ask Alexa to put on a buffet of Buffett tunes, kick back and enjoy. The Great Filling Station Holdup is available from Amazon, Bards and Noble, and upon request from your local bookseller. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then he makes me start all over. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first to be considered to be mysteries. For that reason, this season is called the originators. Today's story is about relentless dedication, an eye for detail, and the price of speculation. This is Desperate Times, an adaptation of The Somnambulist and the Detective by Alan Pinkerton. All right, Jack, let's do a little backstory on this uh, story we're going to hear today. Okie dokie. So our story was first published in 1875, but it took place some 19 years prior in 1856. And the story is reported to be a true story by the author, Alan Pinkerton. Ooh, what a doozy. And you're going to tell us more about him in a little bit, aren't you? Yep. So the names and the places were changed uh, for the original publication. And I found two different variations on the title. So one was The Detective and the Somnambulist, which I'm going to see how many times I trip over that word today. And then the other was The Somnambulist and the Detectives, which is the version that I had downloaded from Project Gutenberg. <laughs> Fun. So, we know that the story took place in northern Mississippi and in a mid-sized city. Well, we don't really know anything except for the fact that we are ourselves. We could be dreaming. <laughs> but There's a chance I'm not real. Mr. Pinkerton tells us that we're in northern Mississippi, but he gives us a fake town name, so we don't know quite where we are. He says we're in a mid-sized city, but I looked up the uh, census data from the 1850s, and six over 600,000 people lived in Mississippi, 
but only about 18,000 of those people lived in cities or towns, which is like less than 3% of the people in the entire state. So I'm not quite sure what constitutes a mid-sized city. It sounds like it's still a place where you know everybody. Well, it just sounds like something that we just didn't do enough research on. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree to disagree. So let me share some uh, other trivial information because, you know, I like to put pins on maps. So I, I, I wanted to pick a place in northern Mississippi, and so I picked the city of Senantobia, Mississippi. Yep, that's a place. It is a place. Um, it is in the central time zone, U.S., which means it's five hours behind Greenwich Mean Time. And Senatobia is 4,400 miles away from Greenwich, London in the UK, which, as we saw in episode one of this season, is where the home is to the Prime Meridian. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So to get from Greenwich to Senatobia, you would leave uh, London's Heathrow Airport, and you can fly into Memphis with a stop, one stop either in Detroit, Chicago, or Miami, and then you'd have to drive about 35 miles south to Senatobia. You don't say. I do. And so from the time the captain says, flight attendants, prepare for takeoff until you're like, hey, mom, I'm home. That's about 13 hours. Wowzers. <laughs> like I said, Senatobia is about 30 minutes from Memphis. Just to give a couple other you know, points on the map. It's two and a half hours from Jackson, Mississippi, the capital. Three and a half from Birmingham, Alabama. And eight and a half from Chicago, Illinois. Wow. Now, all these times are based on our modern speed limits, and, and in one of the many rabbit holes I've been going down lately, I found out that a horse can trot at 10 to 15 miles an hour, which seemed to be the standard form of transportation in the 1850s, so you can take all those times I just gave you and multiply it by six. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, this story today also doesn't give us an exact day or month for the story, but it gives us hints at the time of year. Our detective, Alan Pinkerton, traveled from Chicago to, air quotes, Atkinson, Mississippi. And he described the before and after like this. I arrived there early in the morning, one of the most delightful days of early spring. I had exchanged the brown fields and bare trees of the raw and frosty north for the balmy airs and blooming flowers and waving foliage of the sunny south. So, Jack, based on my own personal experience, I'm thinking we're in February. Because February in Chicago, which is where Pinkerton left, I mean, that's, that's still brutal. It's freezing. Sure is. At least when we look back at this, uh, what fun 2020 was, February in Memphis was 60 degrees. So... There we have that. Uh-huh. Well, that was truly informative. So, thank you. Thank you so much for that information of which I have learned and will forget by tomorrow. This story was written by Alan Pinkerton. He was a Scottish American who moved to Chicago from Glasgow, Scotland in 1842 at a mere 23 years old and worked in a barrel-making factory. And while he was working there, he caught on to a little counterfeiting scheme and helped arrest a criminal gang. He joined the Chicago Police Force and eventually became its first detective. And in 19, not 19, that's like a whole, not decade, century later, when 1850, he eventually started a private detective agency named Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. 
symbol of his company was an unblinking eye, and this started the description of private detectives as private eyes. I always wondered where that came from. Yep, it's not perverted. Pinkerton was a devoted abolitionist. He raised, nope, he raised $500, which today is worth a money that is 11800 Um... Yes, to help 11 escaped slaves travel from Chicago to Detroit. And for $500, I feel like that should have got him a lot farther, but okay. And with the end goal being Canada, our story today... Canada. Set, yes. Canada, don't insult our neighbors to the north. Them Canadians, uh our story today was set in 1856, 11 years before the start of the Civilian War. Pinkerton, I already read that. His agency crew, taking on jobs that were more than solving cases, they pursued wanted suspects, interviewed in business, owner, employee unrest, and acted as security. Hired security. Pinkerton had a role in our Civil War's history. He and his detectives protected a newly elected Presidente Lincoln on his trip to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated into the office. I am not lost. The Pinkertons were hired by the U.S. government to hunt down criminals, but they had a reputation of breaking laws and being a danger to average citizens in the doing of the so. This gave them a mixed reputation of heroes and villains, depending on people's point of view. Isn't there, aren't they bad guys in your one video game? Yes, they are kind of evil in the people where I play evil people. But that's not the real thing, that's just the video game. It's the video game, and... Pinkerton Company is currently suing that company. Well, I would too, I guess. Protect your name. Yep. Let's go on to how Pinkerton became a disappointment to all his friends. Pinkerton's downfall came on his hunt for legendary bank and train robbers Jesse and Frank James in the James Younger Gang. A fellow detective named Joseph Witcher was murdered trying to interrogate suspects at the James homestead. Enraged by the murder, Pinkerton decided to take action. He so famously declared that Jesse and Frank James deserved to die. Then Pinkerton and his fellow detectives and some locals raided the homestead. Pinkerton threw in an incendiary incendiary device into the house. And this device was simply supposed to start a small fire to, like, pursue the people on saying, Hey, maybe we should go outside. And they did go outside because the device exploded, wounding Jesse's mom and killing Jesse's eight-year-old brother, Archie. After the death of that boy, the public opinion kind of went, Hey, Pinkerton, you killed an eight-year-old. And Pinkerton said, All right, I'll go home. And he gave up the chase for Frank and Jesse James, went back home to Chicago from whatever place he was in. Alan Pinkerton died two years later in 1884. His company continued through his sons. As his company grew, it did more and more work for the government. Formal of federation, formation of federal departments, such as the Secret Service and FBI, drew from Pinkerton's people, as did local police forces. Pinkerton is still thriving today, however, offering a wide range of investigative protection and risk profile services. From 1874 to his death, Alan Pinkerton has some 17 stories based on his cases. Oh, Alan Pinkerton wrote... Some 17 stories based on his Important cases. verb there. <laughs> verb. I was wondering. That's what's happening. All right. We have one more sentence to get through. Lucy, um, would you mind not making noise? All right. The first was the express man and the detective in 1874, and the last was 30 years a detective in 1884. 
All right, we're going to just do a little jingle until we're ready to start. So here, have a little have a little listen. That's wrong. <laughs> wow, okay. We told you this was a live show. All right, we're nearly Betty, ready to begin our story. Jack's warming his fingers up. We got the dogs separated. So let's take a minute and explain why we're doing these as adaptations instead of uh, just reading them. Uh, two main reasons. First is that these stories are very cool, but the language in the 1800s is crazy hard. Uh, these stories read a lot more like contracts. There are so many commas in them that it should be illegal. Uh, the second is that the style and length of the stories weren't really meant for listening. They were created for reading, and a lot of them um, are more like soap operas where they just keep evolving over a long, long time. So it doesn't really fit this format. With using these adaptations, we're trying to keep the heart of the story, uh, really preserving and spreading the word about the groundbreaking narrative that became Mysteries, but, you know, with updated packaging. So a brief word about this particular story. It is set in 1850s northern Mississippi. The original text included multiple references to slavery. It's not central to the mystery, and I considered leaving those part out. But in the end, I decided that, you know, slavery is an ugly but real part of our history as Americans, and skipping over it would be dismissive to everybody who lived the reality and fought to change it. So references to slavery are included in the story in the manner that the author intended. Their testimonies to the facts of the case that we're working to solve. So now we're ready for desperate measures. And Jack, that is your cue. I step from the train to the platform taken a moment to absorb the change. Chicago, hours behind me, was still in the gray, windy grips of winter. Northern Mississippi, by contrast, was bursting with color. The wind was warm and gentle, rather than a cold that stole your breath. The land around was green and alive with flowers and trees. My name is Alan Pinkerton. Yes, that Alan Pinkerton, and murder has brought me from the icy grip of Lake Michigan to the fertile fields of Atkinson, Mississippi. Don't bother looking for it on a map. You won't find it. This is a true story, and because it's a true story, I've changed the name of the cities and the people involved. Suffice it to say, Atkinson is a mid-sized city that's doing very well for itself by 1856 standards. Most of the money in the town was in the hands of the capitalists, the planners, and the professional men. Most of the people in the town were working class, shopkeepers, mechanics, laborers, and the like. It was one of these working men who had been murdered some three months before my arrival. George Gordon, age 28, was a managing teller at a bank. He was murdered during a robbery that lightened the bank's coffers by over $100,000 in paper and gold coin. George was a dear nephew of the bank's vice president and apparently equally respected by the bank's president and cashier. The latter wrote to me asking me to solve the murder. They didn't care about the money. And that's how they caught my attention. A bank that didn't care about the money. 
Now, I often receive letters from distressed people asking me to use my particular skill set to solve their problems. Thefts, cons, threats, murders. I've built my business around resolving trouble. There is no shortage of difficulties, but fortunately for me, there is a shortage of those who can solve them. I answered the letter, set my affairs in order, and boarded a train. So here I am. I made my way to the hotel to secure lodging for my stay. Beautiful as the day was, I was too used to the biting cold of the north and quickly became warm. I loosened my clothing and making room for the breeze and was glad to arrive at my destination. The hotel accommodated me for an extended stay as was common in these times. I settled in and adjusted my watch to local time and immediately began to work. The first task was a note of introduction to the man who sent for me, Mr. Thomas McGregor, the cashier for the City Bank of Atkinson. After ascending a boy off and without my heavy coat, I began a reconnaissance of the city. I walked through the town, noting the shops, the saloons, the barber, the bank. The town was built along a creek, and the best homes were close to the water, beautiful in design. The town as a whole exuded southern charm and decorum. There was nothing in the faces greeting me as I passed that hinted a murderer lived here. When I returned to the hotel, the boy was waiting with a response. The rendezvous was set for 8 o'clock. I paid the boy fairly for his work and joined the other guests of the hotel. I was greeted warmly by the many townspeople who lived at the hotel in the winter and spring. Their polite questions allowed me to establish myself in the role as a cotton speculator. Then, like now, a speculator is a middleman, making a profit from buying low and selling high. The cover worked because it would be natural for a speculator to visit the local bank, not just once but multiple times. And the identity was easy to establish. Originally from Scotland, I retained my homeland's flair for words and enriched it to fit the role, and everyone who mattered knew about the cotton trade that was going on with Great Britain. So as I expected, people not only accepted my persona, but they were intrigued, inviting me into their confidence. Barbara was recommended, as was a tailor. I was pointed to the local cotton farmers and spinners who I was assured did work as fine as those in my home country. After a fine dinner, I was ready to go to work. Under the auspices of an evening walk, I arrived on time for my appointment. As directed, I reported to the private side door. The door was answered by a man in his 60s with a worried face. Mr. Pinkerton, I'm Thomas McGregor, the bank's cashier, the man said in a voice rooted in my own. Good evening, Mr. McGregor. I entered the bank, a gentleman's smile on my face. Good name you have. Proud to have it, he said, swelling with that emotion. The name McGregor and every variation of it had been outlawed in Scotland for 150 years. It was only the last two generations that could use the name without risk of losing their head. Thank you for coming all this way, he said. I'm not afraid to tell you, you're our last hope. He led me into the working part of the bank, the area customers never saw, to a large handsome table. Two gentlemen rose as I entered. Alexander Bannantyne, the man at the head of the table said. He spoke with the strength of a voice you expect from a bank president, and he dressed the part. You'd be hard pressed to find a better suit in Chicago. I knew him to be around 50, but he looked closer to McGregor's age. His time as a lawyer had made him a rich man, but left his eyes weighed down with bags. 
Thank you for coming, he said. We've heard of your reputation and hope you can find justice for our George. The man to Bannatine's left nodded. Indeed, I'm Peter Gordon. George was my nephew by blood, but my son in all other ways. We hope you can do what the others before you couldn't, he said. His voice was low and raspy. Three months later and Gordon's face was ashen, his lips dry, his eyes flat. He had the overall look of a man who is not well. McGregor indicated the chair on Bannatine's right and then sat next to me. Bannatine remained standing while we sat. No expenses to be spared in finding George's killer, Pinkerton. Should you find the money, well, that's all in good, but George is our priority. We all want that to be made clear from the start. McGregor and Gordon nodded without hesitation. I understand, Mr. Bannantyne. Mr. McGregor's letter said the same. Begin by telling me everything you know. Bannantyne sunk into his chair. He looked to Gordon. Tell him about George. Gordon smiled weakly, his eyes becoming glassy with tears. George was the best kind of man, smart as a whip, friendly, kind. His integrity was a beyond reproach. He came to our bank when he was still a boy, working as an agent in one of the other towns. Coming of age and proving himself to be up to the task, he was promoted to the position of teller and then head teller. Most of the money that came and went over the counter passed through his hands. He took on the role of a bookkeeper, never losing a single penny. I made a few notes about George's position, preparing to capture the clues to the crime. It's my duty, gentlemen, to ask hard questions. Don't do it to offend, but to get to the root. George was respected, but tell me, did he have any critics? Any man who was slighted, maybe, by his high moral standard? The three glanced amongst themselves before collectively shaking their heads. Bannantyne answered for all. Others have looked into poor George and asked similar questions, and George had a few good friends, solid men in their own right. We didn't know him to socialize with the fast men or women of the town. I didn't expect to be handed a list of suspects. After all, if this was an easy case, it would have been solved already. Tell me about his murder, I said. Do not assume any detail is too small. McGregor cleared his throat. Why don't I start, Mr. Gordon, and you can add to it. With Gordon's approver, McGregor began. George regularly worked past closing to reconcile the books for the day. During the busy season, it would take hours, keeping him working into the night. People knew of George's habit. It was noticed when he took dinner late or was seen leaving the bank into the evening. Occasionally, customers would come after hours if their own businesses prevented them from coming during our standard ones. George would accommodate them. I did too when I was working late myself. We were careful. We never allowed anyone to come in after hours except well-known businessmen and old customers. We keep large sums of money on hand at times. George frequently reminded us to be vigilant. He was not careless. Not ever. McGregor made sure I understood this last point. In short, they would not hear of George bringing this on himself. I acknowledged his testimony as the foundation it was. I assumed the murder and the robbery happened after hours, I said, or there would be no need to describe his vigilance. Had you worked with George that day? I did not, McGregor said. Business took me away from Atkinson for the week. I had returned on the day his body was discovered. I had a bad feeling before I left. 
It was enough that I turned around and spoke again to George, asking if there was something we had forgotten to discuss. Neither of us could think of anything. I directed him not to let customers in after dark. The cotton crop had been very good, sales very rapid. We had unusually large deposits in our vault. He agreed, saying he would only allow one or two of his personal friends in for additional protection. I left him then, saying I would be back within a week. I looked from McGregor to Gordon, waiting patiently for the story to be picked up. I will never forget a moment of those two days, Gordon said. He spoke slowly, deliberately. Emotion was so strong I worried he might break down. He persevered. I spent most of the day before at the bank with George. Bannantyne had gone to his plantation and McGregor to Greenwood. George was perfectly confident to manage the bank alone, but, as McGregor said, our deposits were unusually large. I thought my presence added to the sense of security. We closed the bank at three, our normal time. George planned to work until five and then to return to the hotel for dinner. We both boarded there. I also run a store and needed to see to it. Business had been strong there too. I left George at four to go to the store. I worked for a bit and then returned to the hotel for dinner. George was later than he said and I was nearly finished when he arrived. As he was finishing his meal, I returned to my store. About seven, George joined me. We sat and smoked a cigar, after which we said he needed to return to the bank. He hadn't finished the day's accounts, he told me. McGregor's voice broke with regret. He told me, he told me not to sit up for him. He might be very late. I gave the man a moment and then asked, did anyone hear George make that comment? Gordon blinked rapidly, a sign that he hadn't been asked that question previously. Yes, there were others in the store. The shoemaker Stoltz. George paid him for a new pair of boots. The jeweler Flanders. He had a box for George to lock in the safe. There were others. I, I know there were, but I can't recall who. It would be helpful, I said, if you talked to Stoltz and Flanders. Ask who they remember in the store. Of course, Gordon said. I, I should have thought of it before. Did anyone leave with George or follow shortly thereafter? Flanders went with him, Gordon said. He carried the jewelry. He returned to my store a short time later. George didn't invite him into the bank, claiming he had too much work to do. That was the last anyone spoke to him. Gordon broke down, the months having done little to heal his wounds. Bannantyne put a hand on his shoulder. Eventually his strength returned. I came down to breakfast late the next morning. I didn't think anything of not seeing George. I took care of a few personal errands, the barber, the tobaccoist, and then I went to my shop. The day before had been so busy and, and I was certain George could manage the bank. I'd only been in the shop a few minutes when one of the bank customers, a man named Rollo, came in asking why the bank was shut up at that hour. It was after 10. I thought he was sick, Gordon said. Why else would George not have opened the bank? We went to the bank, me, Rollo, and one of my clerks. Bank was locked tight. We pounded on the door, but George didn't answer. My clerk and I went around to the private entrance, the one you came through, and gave the secret knock we used. Still no answer. I tried the door. I don't know why, but I did, and it was unlocked. Once inside, I opened the shutters for this part of the bank. He wasn't here. 
We hurried into the main bank. I went to the front blinds as it was too dark to see anything. My clerk went behind the counter. He tripped over, over. When he stood up, he said the floor was wet. I opened the blinds and then my clerk cried out in horror. I rushed over and I saw my boy, my poor, poor boy. We paused again, affording Gordon the time he needed. I considered asking Ballantyne or McGregor to continue, but it was Gordon who found the body, and I needed to know what he knew. And I needed something else. Can we go into the bank, I asked. I would like to understand the lay of the land. We rose together. Bannantyne assisted Gordon. McGregor went ahead with a lamp. While spring had graciously endowed the temperatures, the sun was well set. I assisted McGregor with the lamps until the area behind the counter was well lit. Gordon pointed toward the vault. There was George's desks. He was lying midway between it and the safe door. He was murdered by three hammer blows to the back of the head. The canceling hammer that he used daily was nearby, clotted with blood and hair. Bannantyne nodded sadly. We know he was standing at his desk when he was struck based on the blood splatter. He was standing for the first blow, which landed behind his left ear. The evidence shows he staggered a few steps and then he fell. The second and third blows came when he was on the ground. The doctor said the first blow was enough to kill George. Apparently it wasn't enough for a killer. It was horrible, Gordon said, his voice thin as a shadow. Blood was everywhere. George laid in a large pool and it was splattered everywhere. The desks, the chair, the table, the wall. Sometimes I wake up choking on the nightmare. I can imagine, I said gently. You collectively suspect the killer's first intention was to rob, correct? McGregor answered, we do. George had no enemies. No one benefited from his death. There's no sense in killing George except that he stood between the man and a vault. Gordon's eyes were affixed on the vault. The door was slightly open. The keys were in the lock of the inner door. As Gordon explained, McGregor withdrew the keys from a hidden drawer and opened the vault. The outer section was made of shelves lined with ledgers and drawers. The inner door reminded me of a jail with bars and slats, space to prohibit entry or exit shelving neatly arranged bundles and bags. It was ruthlessly organized, as you would expect in a vault. I sealed everything, Gordon continued. I left it as it was for the sheriff and the coroner. They came directly. A jury was immediately summoned for the inquest. Nearly the entire town surrounded the bank by then. The coroner named Drysdale Foreman, a very close friend of George's. Drysdale was not outside the bank, and he was sent for. When he learned what happened, he was as distraught as I, and he begged to be excused. The coroner let him off. George was well-loved, Bannatine said, more to Gordon than to me. The inquest was held here in our back room. Nothing had been removed except George's body and the hammer. The coroner found nothing on examining the body, I asked. We did find a bill of the Planters Bank of Georgia under George. He fell on his side, his, his hand hidden beneath him. We have the bill. McGregor, will you get it? The eldest man entered the vault and opened one of those drawers. He withdrew the contents with reverence. He handed a torn page to me. It's stained, he said. 
The remnant of a $100 bill was crumpled, as if wadded in a fist. Blood had soaked the dark ridges, lightening the valleys. All of us, together, searched for clues with the sheriff. Bannantyne started to sound like the lawyer he'd been for years. The public side there had nothing of value. But here, behind the counter, we found traces the murderer left behind. Something had recently been burned in the fireplace. The grate had been perfectly clean the day before. We asked expert chemists to look at the remnants. They all agreed it was cloth, likely clothing. Bannantyne gestured to McGregor, who set a small collection on George's desk. We found buttons. Five were iron and another three were horn. We found a twisted piece of paper charred at one end. It looked like it was used to light the fire, but look here. He stubbed his finger at the curled pages. It's a note for $927.78. The signature, part of the date, and the amount are still readable. Alexander P. Drysdale, I read. Drysdale, you said he was one of George's friends. Yes, Bannantyne said, and our esteemed county clerk. He's a good man. Bannantyne moved the buttons aside for the paper beneath. This sheet was found under George. It seemed every other piece of paper was burned. The desks and floors were clear, and the wastebaskets empty. The only bank note in this piece of paper survived. Doesn't mean anything to us. We hope, perhaps foolishly, that it will mean something to you. It was a letter paper, six inches by three inches, and stained brownish red. Through the stain, pen marks were clearly visible. Numbers were listed for addition. There were small groups here and there, as if George were checking his math. The backside was blank. What did you find in the vault, I asked. All the loose money was gone, McGregor said. The murderer left the packaged bills and coins. The prior week, George had bundled the bills into $5,000 packages, wrapped in red tissue paper. He had put over $100,000 up on the shelves, all of which remained untouched. The loose money totaled $105,000. Another $28,000 in gold eagles and double eagles were also taken. Two were found a few days later. Bannantyne pointed to a map of the area on the wall. One of Colonel Garnet's slaves found them at the old fort at the creek. The place is just outside the city. Of course, we could not absolutely identify the gold coins, but we came to the conclusion that the killer dropped them during his escape. All of George's friends organized a search party and scoured the woods looking for the killer or some clue, any clue to who they were. Nothing was found. Drysdale did not ride, McGregor said. Poor Stodd was still sick about it all. You're right, thank you, McGregor, I had forgotten. It was for the better that he stayed in his bed and said nothing was found. The coroner closed the inquest the next day and the verdict was death at the hands of person or persons unknown. Gordon lifted his chin as though summoning his courage to speak. Everyone came for his funeral, from miles and miles away. He was so well-liked, no one could understand it. Indeed, McGregor said, there was none better than George. Everyone agreed the murderer had to be brought to justice. Rewards were offered, large ones. Bank offered one, so did the county officials and even the governor. Other detectives have been here before you, Pinkerton. They listened to our story and they studied the torn bill, the paper, and the buttons. No progress has been made. None. So I wrote to you. You are our last chance to find justice for George. Do whatever you need to. Spare no expense. If you're successful, when you're successful, we will pay you very well in addition to the rewards offered.
rose and said, do not take me for an amateur, gentlemen. I am a professional, as this is my agency and my detectives. I want to be perfectly clear that charges for our work will be in accordance with my pricing schedule. This is the way we work. The charge will be based on the number of detectives and the time they expend. Nothing more is expected. Nothing more will be accepted. We negotiated the details and I formally accepted the assignment. Thank you for the description of that terrible night. I appreciate how difficult it is for you. I looked specifically at Mr. Gordon who nodded. Let's go back to the table and sit. I'm going to ask you questions and I want you to answer them to the best of your knowledge. Do not make assumptions about the reason behind my asking them or take them to indicate a direction. When we reclaimed our chairs, I began. Who were George's closest friends? McGregor answered, George had many friends, but like we told you, only a few he considered close. We mentioned John Flanders, the jeweler. He lives in town. Alexander Drysdale, he's the county clerk. He keeps a home in town and has a plantation a half day's ride away. There's Walter Patterson, a merchant with a shop near Mr. Gordon's. He also lives in town. And the last is Henry Carruthers. He's the son of a wealthy planner and lives a couple miles out of town. I wrote the names in a list. Mr. Gordon, do you recall if any of these men were in the bank the previous day? Gordon frowned, thinking. Carruthers stopped in. He didn't conduct business. He spoke to George for a few minutes, inviting him to spend Sunday at the plantation. Flanders, as I mentioned, did not come in during hours, as was his usual habit. Patterson and Drysdale were not in. Excellent, Mr. Gordon, I said, noting the details. Do you recall any strangers in or around the bank? No, he said, I'm certain. In those days after, I worked hard at remembering who was around that could have done that to George. There was not a strange face among them. Everyone was a customer or a townsperson. The keys to the vault, I asked. Did George carry them with him? No, they said in unison. McGregor then answered. He used to carry them, but we, separately, advised him against the habit. He saw reason and changed to keeping the keys in the secret drawer in the desk. Would George have needed the keys for the work he planned to do that evening? Gordon answered. If George sealed the vault when he left for dinner, then yes, he would have needed the key to open the outer door to access the journal and the ledger. He would not have opened the inner door where the money was kept. Does the same key open both doors? No, but they're kept on the same keychain. What were the state of the journal and ledgers? Were they in their normal place? Had George worked in them? Gordon, as first on the scene, continued to answer. My questions were not weighing him down. The books were in their usual places. They were in perfect order. George had done a great deal of work. All of the entries were up to date, and I suppose that means they had finished his work before. Before. Were there any papers missing? I asked quickly to prevent him backsliding. Yes, there were, Gordon said, keeping his head. We kept small bundles of old checks, drafts, and miscellany wrapped in thin wire. One or two were burned. We found the wires in the grate with the buttons. I separated the remnants of the banknotes from the rest. Could this note, the one with Drysdale's signature, could it have been pulled from one of these packages? 
I don't know where else it would have come from, Gordon said. Do you, McGregor? I hadn't thought about it, McGregor said. There's nowhere else for it to come from. Someone used the old paper in the vaults and the little bits in the wastebasket as fuel, then used this note to not like them. There wasn't any value in the papers. They were kept for records only. I picked up the note and studied it, searching along the ruined edges for information, and then I saw it. A detail. One detail that might make a difference. The fire had not completely erased the date. The year was visible. The year of the murder. If the note had been paid, the canceling hammer would have been used on it to return it to its maker. If it was unpaid, it would have been kept in the counts receivable. In neither case would it have been bundled with the records deemed valueless. As I said, a detail, but one that raised questions. I took the thought away and continued to look for other details. I collected the known alibis for the three present, Stoltzmaker the shoemaker and George's friends. I copied down the account balances of those same men. I asked about any newspaper account of similar robberies or news of gangs in the area. Exhausting my questions as well as my clients, I asked for a recess. I would like to take a day to contemplate all you've shared with me. Shall we reconvene tomorrow evening? At that time, I will let you know what I think about this case. Next morning began with breakfast at the hotel. It was a stout breakfast one associates with Southern hospitality. I have to admit, after Chicago winter, I ate like a bear coming out of hibernation. Halfway through my grits, a man took a table two over from mine. With no one seated between us, our gazes naturally found each other. Gordon was awkward about the whole affair and others were noticing. I stood and went to introduce myself. Good morning, sir, I said with exaggerated cheer. Alan Pinkerton, cotton speculator. Good, good morning, I'm Peter Gordon. I operate the general store and I'm vice president of the bank. The bank? Well, you are just the man I wanted to meet. Do you mind if I join you? No, no, of course not. Forgive me, I, I should have asked. He gestured to the seat opposite. When did you arrive? Gordon was trying. He realized the importance of my keeping my actual identity secret. Yesterday, and I'm happy to say I left winter far behind me. We talked about the mundane and the frivolous, which relaxed Gordon as much as I'd ever seen him. His complexion was still pale, but he smiled a time or two. Our server brought my breakfast to the table with a new setting. I continued to devour the farmer's breakfast, and Gordon's soft-boiled egg and toast were nibbled as if by a mouse. I encouraged him to eat, hoping it would bring some color to his face. After breakfast, I accompanied Gordon to his store on the auspices of being shown around the town. Two storefronts beyond the general store was a sign for Patterson's Men's Finery. Thank you for your generous company, Mr. Gordon, but I believe I will visit your neighbor. I pack too heavily for your weather. Of course, of course, Gordon said, and what I was re becoming to realize was his favorite word. He found his footing and played along with our game. I'll be in the bank later today, should you care to stop in. Thank you. It was a matter of 20 paces before my hand was on the brass handle of the men's store. I opened it, and a small bell announced my presence. The man who came out of the back retained the smooth skin of youth, but had a slight graying of experience. Mr. Patterson, I asked. I am. What can I do for you? 
Alan Pinkerton, cotton speculator. I just arrived in town and find that I have overpacked. I'm looking for a coat of the proper weight for your beautiful weather. Patterson sized me up, as tailors tend to do, and set about the business of measurements. I did the same of him. Patterson had $2,472.27 in his account at the time of George's death. He had not come into the bank the day before. He had never taken a loan from the bank, and he did not often go in after hours to conduct business or visit with George. I'm very impressed with Atkinson, I said. A very pleasant, respectable town you have here. I wintered in Philadelphia, which, I can tell you, was neither pleasant nor, in places, respectable. Well, I suppose it's a little bit the same everywhere. Surely you don't have villainy that is found in the bigger cities here. Generally speaking, no, Patterson said. Just petty stuff as happens when folks are close together. But then, there was what happened to poor George. He shook his head. Poor George, I echoed. What happened? George was head teller at the bank. He was killed during a robbery at the end of last year. I shook my head sadly. It seems there's no getting away from unscrupulous people. Did they catch the man? No, and at this point I've given up hope. George was a good friend of mine. I wasn't here when it happened. I'd gone to Mobile to buy materials. I learned what happened when I returned two days after. A coin from the bank was found about the same time. I borrowed a horse since mine was exhausted and went right back out. We didn't find anything. Not a coin, not a campfire, not a scrap of cloth. We passed the better part of an hour with him measuring and showing me models and me directing the conversation to the death of George Gordon. Not being in town at the time of the murders, he could not personally confirm the information I had. What he knew and what he saw were consistent, though, with what I learned. I left a deposit for the code and accepted the receipt, leaving to interview my next witness. John Flanders, the jeweler, had the largest deposit at the time of George's death, $12,263.03. He had not taken a loan from the bank. He frequented the bank both during hours and after. Flanders had accompanied George to the bank that faithful night. His shop was open when I arrived. Good day, stranger. Welcome to Atkinson Jewelry. Thank you. Would you be John Flanders? I am, he said with an earnest smile. He was in his sunset years, but had the robust attitude of a man who enjoyed his life. Alan Pinkerton, I said. Peter Gordon sent me your way. I'm in need of a new set of cufflinks. Buying cufflinks is a much shorter task than being measured for a jacket. I took my time trying on every set Flanders offered. I understand condolences are appropriate. Mr. Gordon told me about his nephew and your friend George. Ah, poor George, he said. I still have dreams of that night. Gordon mentored and you were with him at the time. I made the intentional mistake. If I were, it wouldn't have happened. No, I had gone to, with George to the bank. It was a busy day and my clerk was off. I couldn't get there before the end of hours. I was on the way back to the hotel to find George when I spotted him and Peter in Peter's store. I joined them for a cigar and then went with George to the bank. Normally, George would invite me in and we'd pass the time together, but not that night. He had too much work to do. You see, the cotton harvest had been one of the best crops in years, and the deposits needed to be entered and the accounts balanced. The bank was flush then, I said. 
prime for a robbery. Was that common knowledge? He frowned. I wouldn't call it common. I mean, we spoke about business. George, myself, Flanders, Drysdale, Carruthers. Cotton sales feed all of our businesses. Patterson's orders were up, as were my sales. Carruthers, of course, he is a planner and he knew the market. Drysdale's our county clerk, but he has a family plantation himself. I picked up a handsome cufflink with a black P. By those terms, anyone in business in town could logically expect the bank's deposits to be rich. Do you, do you think the robber was in the bank when you left, George? He thought again. It's possible. George opened the door and lit a lantern. I handed him the box of jewels for the vault and he waved me off. I wished him well and heard the door lock behind me. The light traveled as I did, George walking through the back room to his desk. If someone was in there, they were in the complete dark. I wish I'd gone back. I could have. They could have signaled for, you know, signaled for hours. I could have sat there quietly, not disturbing his work, but making sure that he wasn't alone. That is the power of hindsight. I gave an exaggerated sigh. Were your jewels stolen? No, he said. George had put them up on the shelf in the spot usually reserved for them. It's fortunate for me as my business would not have survived. What were you thinking, Mr. Pinkerton? He waved his hand over his selection. Slipping the small packages into my too heavy coat, I wandered to the county clerk's office. The nameplate declared the man of some 40 years to be Alexander Drysdale. His was the smallest deposit of the friends at $324.22. While he did not have the cushion of Flanders, many a working man would have appreciated his balance. Drysdale was thin, his hair just beginning to silver. Though the office was empty, he had an air of being overworked. I waited for him to acknowledge me. It was long enough to make it clear that interruptions were not welcome and I was an interruption. Can I help you? Alan Pinkerton, Mr. Drysdale. I'm a cotton speculator. I understand your corner of Mississippi is right for growing cotton. Among other crops, he said, not rudely, but certainly not inviting conversation. I tried other lines of entry into conversation with the same degree of success. That is, none. Relating my conversations with Patterson and Flanders also failed to open the door. Well, I can see you're busy, Mr. Drysdale. Could I impose on you for a listing of cotton planters in the county? Certainly, Mr. Pinkerton. I myself have a plantation just a half day from here. You'll find Atkinson is fertile ground for both cotton and business. He hand wrote a list of planters. I am considering taking on investors. An interesting proposition, I said. I came here with the sole intent of buying cotton. I suppose owning an interest would cut out the middleman. I smiled wryly. Even if that middleman is me. I accepted the list. Thank you. You've certainly given me a lot to think about. Last on my list was Henry Carruthers. Now he lived some distance outside of town. His balance upon George's death was $817.48. He had overdrafted once for $300, but made good on it, so no loan was issued. Carruthers had been in the bank the day before, but not for business. He was inviting George to his plantation on Sunday, so I was told. I resigned myself to the idea that I would not meet Carruthers. I didn't have the time to ride out to him. The best I would be able to do was to ascertain if he had left town after the bank or whether he stayed. I had no choice but to discuss the matter with Mr. Gordon. 
Asking any of the others would have made them suspicious. Crother was not seated at the inquest jury, Gordon said. Had he been present, I'm sure the coroner would have selected him. As alibis went, I've heard worse. I returned to the hotel. Sunlight brightened my room. A thick beam cut across the writing desk. I sat and set out the items loaned to me from the bank masters. I started a new page, capturing my notes from the conversations with Patterson, Flanders, and Drysdale. The handwritten list from Drysdale matched his signature on the singed note. I re-examined each piece of evidence, looking at it from every direction. The page with the addition figures showed something new in the sunlight. Beneath the large stain were two more sets of numbers. Written in pencil, they were invisible in the shadows. It was another set of numbers. First written was 324-22. A line crossed below it and then was written $927.78. I had seen those numbers before in two separate places. Okay, everybody, we are now at the point where we know everything Pinkerton does. So Pinkerton clearly has four suspects. He has Patterson, the 30-something-year-old shop owner who claims he was in Mobile, Alabama at the time George was killed. We have Flanders, the 70-something jeweler who claims he left George at the door of the bank. And we have Drysdale, the 40-something county clerk who, well, he's not given us much information at all. And last is Carruthers, the young planter who may or may not have been in town. It's like that game you've been playing, Jack, the one where you have to pick the imposter. Okay, well, okay, so here, I don't think it's... Car, the car others. Car others. Okay. Because I feel like Pinkerton, as the writer, would have given us more on it. Unless he's gonna put like pull an Agatha Christie and like, oh, it turns out the real killer. We mentioned his name three times in the first two chapters. You should have gotten it by the eighteenth. Come on, guys. It's You're game you. in the story. You're figuring that it can't be him because of the way Pinkerton wrote it. Yeah. What if it was the way I wrote what Pinkerton wrote? I don't know what that's supposed to mean. The point is. <laughs> Is that we know so little about him, I don't think it can be him. Okay. So, and then there were three. And then there were three. So, my personal suspect is Drysdale, simply because he's we've talked about him a lot. He's yeah. been brought up way more than any of the other um, people. We know more about him than anyone else. So, I don't know if that means we know he's more innocent than everyone else, or if he's more guilty. I don't know. I am clueless. The point is, is I think it, it's not Carruthers. 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 Drysdale, we know a lot about him, but we didn't get a lot from him from the interview. So I think that kind of balances itself out. And then we have Patterson, who was the the, the guy who was making the jacket. Yeah, there's Patterson. I don't know. Okay, I'm still stuck on Drysdale. He okay. was weird. He <laughs> refused to go places and try and help him. He was so distraught. But then he was the most secluded. But I don't know. All right, okay. all right, whatever, whatever, whatever. All right, so why don't you give us an intro, and we'll give uh, listeners a few seconds there to pick your own murderer, and then we will rejoin Pinkerton as he cracks this case. All righty.
Nope. I think that one needs a little practice. <laughs> Proof that this is a live recording. Right, I can put, do okay. Just put your microphone back in place, and, and we'll go back into the baseline. Fine. <laughs> At eight p.m., I knocked on the private entrance to the bank. McGregor once again admitted me. Bannantine and Gordon waited at the table. All three men were grim-faced, but polite. I took the seat offered to me last night, and we began without preamble. Gentlemen, I said, I've given thought to the tax you laid at my feet. I have a theory, but I am cautious in drawing conclusions for a few reasons. First, multiple competent detectives have come before me, and they've failed to arrive at a solution. Significant time has passed since the events of that evening, leaving me to work with limited evidence and fallible memories. And finally, the conclusion itself is one that will not be welcome and cannot be proved. It stands to reason, if the killer had left conclusive evidence, he would have been caught. Color flushed Gordon's cheeks for the first time. You know who killed George. Let's walk through that evening. George and Flanders left your shop, Gordon, and went directly to the bank. George went in, lit a lamp, and accepted the box from Flanders. The bank was dark as Flanders watched the light from the lamp George carried travel to the general area of his desk. The thief, if he was there, did not show himself. In fact, he did not show himself for some time as George opened the vault, placed Flanders' box inside in its usual place, retrieved the books, and not only began to work, but completed updating the journals. This would have taken some time. If the thief was already in the bank, there would have been no reason to wait. As such, we draw the conclusion that the thief was not in the bank. Someone George knew came to the bank, and George let that someone in. This wasn't just a customer. For McGregor, you yourself had cautioned George to forego after-hour customers. No, this was a friend. Patterson was in Mobile, and is the only one of the three friends completely absolved. Flanders, Drysdale, and Carruthers still may be possibilities. The bill found in George's hand tells us that this wasn't a social visit. George was either taking money in or letting money out. Given the bill was $100, I would say and it was a sizable transaction and the money was outgoing. Any man coming to the bank with the intention to rob it would not be making a deposit. The man in need of money gave in to temptation. There, just feet away, was the answer to all his problems. Just one man stood in the way. It was a crime of opportunity, the canceling hammer within reach. Gordon reached across the table, his hand cold and remarkably strong on my arm. Who? I opened the envelope they had provided and withdrew the torn note. Is this signature authentic? The three studied it. Yes, McGregor answered. I am certain that is Drysdale's signature. George had the habit of checking his math on separate paper, I said. Working after hours did not change this habit. 
I set the same document on the table and pointing at the etching. Being after hours, after he finished his work, he grabbed a pencil instead of his usual ink. The top number is lost, but the second number was $324.22, and below the line, $927.78. Flanders had over $12,000 in his account at the time. Neither number makes sense for him. Similarly, Carruthers had $817.48. No matter how the numbers are added or subtracted, they do not add up. On the day George was murdered, Drysdale's account stood at $324.22. The amount of the note, as you see, was $927.78. I surmise that your Drysdale was withdrawing $1,252. From that number, George had subtracted the $324.22 to verify the amount of the note, $927.78. Drysdale had signed the note. George had retrieved the money from the vault as was likely, and was likely counting it on his desk when he was attacked from behind. Drysdale, Bannantyne spat out the name as a curse. I can hardly believe it. But he was sick about it, Gordon said, his heart warring with his head. I could see his face that he wanted to believe the evidence. I, McGregor said, he was sick with it, all right, sick with guilt. But where do we go with this, Pinkerton? That is the challenge, gentlemen. As I said, there is no hard evidence against Drysdale. Anything I put in front of him, he can explain away. The answer to your mystery I give you just for my expenses to come here. To give you justice? I'll have to send a team of detectives. It is possible that you will recover some of the funds. The three looked between them. It was Bannantyne, the president, who spoke. We stand by what we said yesterday. This isn't about the money. This is about justice for George. You got that one right. I knew it. <laughs> you gamed it. You so gamed it. Wait, hold on. Don't start the outro yet. I want to tell people a little bit more about this story. Oh, cool. Okay, so there is a second half to the story. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is just all t itchy today. Uh, there is a second half to the story that details how the Pinkerton detectives get their man. Spoiler alert. If you plan to read the story, mute us for seven seconds. In essence, three detectives come to town and haunt Drysdale with George's ghost, driving him to the brink of madness. Drysdale is a sleepwalker, hence the somnambulist, and leaves his house to return to the place where he hid the money. Eventually, he confesses everything. He had invested and speculated, and he'd lost. So he had his home and he had his plantation, but he didn't have the money to run them properly. He went to George for a loan. And yes, when he saw the money in the vault, his desperate times led to desperate measures. After confessing, he asks to see a friend, and he sends him to apologize to his wife. And then in a few moments he had alone, Drysdale kills himself. It's a really interesting story to read, but we didn't include it here because, well, Pinkerton solves the mystery halfway through the story, and, and that's what we got today. Now, if you want to hear it, I mean, I'll do it just alone. Or I can hire um, Shannon, uh, the uh, amazing cover artist, to come here and 
talk about it or she will play her ukulele or guitar <laughs> as the background and I will just do that. But you have to let us know. And seeing as no one's actually listening to this yet. This oh, you weird. stop it. I'm sorry, Mrs. Morris. Uh, we know you're there. Anyway. <laughs> um, All right. This is the reason why you use an editor. <laughs> ah, yes. So that wraps I up this editor, episode though. of Mysteries to Die oh, For. Oops. And I wish I had a mute button on Jack's microphone. <laughs> Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us or giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay whatever you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution by the very, very wordy today Jack Wolf. Desperate Measures was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from Alan Pinkerton's The Somnambulist and the Detective. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks as we take apart a mystery of a haunted house. Until then, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. All right, Jack, take us out. <laughs>